Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we are so excited to have Dr. Ryan Eckert, Senior Research Scientist here in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue University to speak with us about radioactivity. Thanks, Aaron and Steve. Great to be here. All right, let's, let's start with the big thing, the big question. We hear about, every time I pull up Google, I hear about some sort of radioactive dating type of thing. And uh, I mean, at first it sounds like, I, I don't know, there's so many directions I could go with that and I probably shouldn't take any of them, but uh, a lot of paths there. And so uh, you, I mean, you're, uh, I mean, heck, you have a PhD and you're a senior scientist and this is what you do for a living. And so uh, I can't think of a better person to explain what exactly is radioactive. When we talk about radioactive decay, I mean, it's is it something that's literally radioactive? Like, does it grow green? And uh, do we have toxic signs for it and stuff like that? I mean, little green men, or little green, green men women. aren't radioactive. They're men. from Mars. <laughs> yes, yeah, Stephen. So, um, so I do use uh, radioactivity um, in in what I do here at Purdue. So I'm a I'm a geologist. I was trained as a geologist. So I have a I have a rock hammer and I go and I hit rocks. And a lot of what we do in geology is try to work out what the what the age of the rocks are. And there's a few different ways to do that. But the way that I use is um, the the method that I use uses radioactive decay, like you said. So um, radioactive decay, the way that I use it is uh, I actually look for uh, minerals that contain small amounts of naturally occurring radioactive elements. Um, now we know that uh, rocks and minerals and all substances are made up of atoms um, and atoms of a particular element have the same number of uh, what we call protons and neutrons, protons and electrons. Um, and that um, defines the chemical behavior of a particular element. So for example, uh, all lead, has the same number, all lead atoms have the same number of protons and electrons, and that means that they behave chemically the same. So all those, uh, all those lead atoms are gonna behave the same. So chemical reactions, they all work the same. However, um, some of these atoms actually have different numbers of neutrons. This is a neutral particle that's located in the nucleus, right next to the protons. And if you have too many or too few neutrons, that element can actually be unstable and radioactive. And so there are a few um, naturally occurring radioactive elements such as uranium, thorium, potassium um, that occur in the earth and in geological materials like rocks and minerals. And because we, um, because we know the rates at which these, these elements decay, um, so these would be, so for example, uranium, we know that uranium decays at a relatively constant rate. We can use that as a little clock inside of rocks to determine the age of rocks and minerals. How do, you know, how do you know it's a, a set pattern to a time for the you mean the, the decay the decay rates yeah decay rate I, yep. there's a word i was desperately trying to remember that's because we can actually take these into into a lab and we can actually count the decay okay so we can take a big lump of uranium so for example i use a lot of uranium so we can take a big lump of uranium put it into a lab and um, it'll actually emit um, small particles when it decays. Um, one particle that it emits is, a, is, a, is an alpha particle. 
Um, and the details aren't important, but it will emit particles every time they decay, so we can actually count them. So basically, you can take one of these big lumps, you can put it into a lab, you put a detector on it, and you have a stopwatch. And you click the stopwatch on, and then it'll go pew, 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 and decay, and you count that number of decays, and you can actually work out what the rate is. So the rate for um, uranium, at least one isotope of uranium, there are two different naturally occurring long-lived isotopes of uranium, uranium-238. Um, uh, that uh, A nanogram of that, which is um, a billionth of a gram, um, a billionth of a gram of, of uranium-238 decays at a rate of about one decay per day. Um, and so that's not very fast, that's really slow, but if you accumulated a lot more of that, it would decay a lot faster. Um, and so you can actually do that and repeat that experiment multiple times and demonstrate that that decay is actually relatively constant. You can calibrate its rate. All right, so if a decay is where they're losing particles then, or losing energy? Yeah, so when it decays, um, it'll actually lose a little part of uh, a little part of the nucleus, and um, and it actually will decay into a different elements. Um, and in the case of uranium, which is what I work with a lot, the uranium will decay several times and ultimately ultimately end up as uh, as an isotope of lead. Okay, so uranium two thirty eight eventually decays to lead two hundred six, um, and that rate um, we characterize uh, these decay rates in terms of half life. And that's the amount of time that it takes for half of an amount of something like uranium-238 to decay. And that half-life for uranium-238 is approximately four and a half billion years. Um, it's a very long time to decay. And that's why there's still uranium around because it takes such a long time to decay. You said four and a half billion years? Four and a half billion years, billion with a B. So that's 4.5 thousand million years. Yeah, a very long time. And the, the Earth is approximately four and a half billion years. So the Earth itself has about half as much uranium-238 as it did um, when, it, uh, when it accreted at the, at the, beginning, of the, at the beginning of the solar system, in the early solar system. Because oh, you said naturally occurring, but does this mean that it, it, so it, it doesn't, it's not, uranium is not being made still somehow? It's just that is the uranium we got when everything did what it did? Yeah, all of the all of the uranium two thirty five and two thirty eight, with one, with one, <laughs> one very special exception, uh, in um, Gabon, uh, all of the uranium two thirty five and two thirty eight that's in nature um, was uh, was there when the Earth was accreted originally. So, uh, with with one very very special exception that's very tiny. Um, all the uranium, um, all the uranium that we have of 235 and 238 uh, was here um, when the Earth was accreted. Yep. Okay. Is that the same type of uranium that's used in like power plants? Yeah, plants? exactly. So um, when in nuclear power plants, um, one thing that uh, we talk, sometimes you'll hear in the news about, uh, about uranium enrichment. And what that means is that there are um, two of these long-lived uranium isotopes in nature, uranium-235 and 238. Um, and I actually measure both of those in the lab, but 238 is the more important one. Um, you, the ratio of those two, um, there's, it, well, there's, of natural uranium, um, most uranium is uh, uranium-238. It's about 99.7% uh, uranium-238. Um, but uranium-235, the one that's a very low abundance in nature, is the one that's useful for nuclear reactors. And so when you talk about nuclear enrichment, that's a process by which um, 
physicists and engineers have enriched natural uranium in 235 relative to 238. Uh, and that's what's used in reactors is natural uranium that's been synthetically enriched in uranium-235. And that's actually a very challenging thing to do to separate isotopes like that, at least, at least in bulk. It's a big engineering challenge. And that's why it doesn't happen very often in nature. Now, how you said you measure, you're, you're able to detect some of these types of uranium or you work with uranium. I guess I want to know how, what sorts of safety thing, safety issues are there? Like, are you able to touch it, I guess, for one thing? And, and do you have to wear, do you, do you have to be careful breathing around it? And like, what sorts of, how easy is it to get? So natural uranium, um, natural uranium occurs in all kinds of rocks and minerals. Um, it occurs in the ground and radioactive decay of uranium is actually what's responsible, for example, for radon problems in basements. Um, so these are, so natural uranium is all around us and typically it's at a very low abundance. So it's not usually, it's not usually a problem. Um, the, uh, Often um, physicists express uh, the amount of radioactivity in terms of, um, in terms of a value called activity. Um, and a high activity means there's lots of radioactivity. A low activity means that there's not very much. And uranium, because it has a very long half-life, um, has a very low activity. Um, so the actual, because it doesn't decay very often, and we're usually dealing with very, very small amounts, that radioactivity, um, the actual activity amount that we might be worried about in terms of safety is actually very low. In addition, the type of decay um, that most often, the type of um, ionizing radiation um, that's problematic uh, from uranium-238 and uranium-235 is mostly uh, what we call alpha particles. And these are um, essentially nuclei of um, helium atoms and they're actually very large. So compared to say, um, a gamma ray, which you may have heard of because that's how the, that's why the Hulk is green. <laughs> gamma rays are very high energy and they can pass through a lot of material. So you need lead shielding in order to protect yourself from gamma radiation, but alpha radiation, these particles, they're very large and they can be basically be blocked by a piece of paper um, or by a bottle or even by skin. Um, so, so it's not very dangerous unless it's, unless it's ingested. So if you were able to, if you accidentally ate some uranium or inhaled some dust, that could be very, that could be very dangerous because then you'd be exposing a lot of your internal organs to that alpha radiation. Fortunately, we will work with extremely small quantities of uranium and most of the time it's dissolved in an acidic solution. So we would be more worried about the acidity from the solution rather than the uranium itself. Having said that, we do have to worry about, um, Health, health and safety from radioactive materials. So everything that we do work with is registered with the radio, um, with the with the proper safety authorities, and we do have radioactivity labels on a lot of things. Oh, so you are you on like an international watch list? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know whether you want to put this in, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I pretty regularly interact with um, because of the way that we make measurements we actually do need to acquire and use some of these enriched uranium, um, some of the enriched uranium um, that, uh, the, that the nuclear industry uses uh, and weapons people use. So I, I do use um, what you might consider weapons grade uranium in terms of the um, enrichment, um, but in terms of the amount, it's extremely, extremely small. So it's not, there's no, there's no serious hazard, but we do have to um, be, uh, we do have to make sure that all we have, all the, all the uranium that we use when we make measurements is is registered and accounted for. 
And this isn't the naturally occurring uranium. This is uranium that we acquire in order to help us make measurements that I can explain later. Okay. okay. Well, I, that's intriguing. I mean, Which part? <laughs> I can tell you all about it. Uh, no, I mean, that is. It's because it, you have to use enriched to help you make measurements. Yeah. So when we, um, when we find the samples that we want to date... Okay, so what we want to do is determine the amount of uranium that's in the mineral and the amount of lead that was produced by radioactive decay. Uh, and that's very straightforward. So we take a, a mineral sample um, and, uh, we, and then we just measure the amount of uranium and then we measure the amount of uh, what we call radiogenic lead. And that's the amount of lead that is, um, uh, that is uh, in the rock or mineral as a result of radioactive decay. Um, and that's to separate it out from um, lead that might have been in there um, incidentally um, before the before the mineral formed. So we want to measure the amount of radio uh, radiogenic lead, and the way that we do this is by a technique called isotope dilution, um, and that's a very fun thing that we do. Uh, and what we do is, uh, for example, for uranium, uh, if we have uh, if we have a little mineral and say there's um, we'll use an example of a nanogram again, and that's a very common amount of uranium that we might have in an individual mineral. And again, that's one billionth of a gram of uranium. It's a very small amount of uranium. How so if I had the, uh, the samples themselves, um, the actual mineral grains are typically about um, one tenth of a millimeter in their longest dimension. So they're tiny little elongate crystals. So if you think of a quartz crystal that has nice faceting, um, we use crystals um, called zircon. They're related, but not the same as cubic zirconia. Uh, and you might know them as the, one of the December birthstones. Um, and so, yeah, they're very, very small. Um, typically the longest dimension, they're little, little um, long crystals. Uh, longest dimension is roughly the same as the diameter of a human hair. Um, and that's sort of a common thing that we, common thing that we measure. And the uranium concentrations in those are only about hundred parts per million. So um, most of that grain is things other than uranium. There's only a very small amount of uranium in them. Okay. So we would take one of these minerals and it might have um, a billionth of a gram of uranium in it. And that'll be mostly uranium-238 with a small amount of uranium-235. And we wanna measure exactly how much is in there. So what we do is we take um, some synthetic uranium that's produced in a reactor. And this is uranium-233. This is uranium that isn't present at all in nature and is, and is only produced in nuclear reactors. So what we have to do is we have to go to um, some of the U United States national labs who produce this and purify it and then sell it to researchers um, with, you know, under um, very, very carefully. And um, we have... Um, we have procedures in place by which we can acquire these uh, acquire these uh, these isotopes. So we'll take um, some uranium two thirty three and we add a very very precisely calibrated amount of uranium two thirty three to that sample. And so we've added uranium two thirty three and then we mix the sample up like crazy. We mix it as well as we can. We heat it up. We dry it down. We put it in acid so that all those uranium atoms, the natural uranium and the spike of the the isotope dilution synthetic uranium, are all mixed together and jumbled up. So chemically, it just looks like one massive uranium, but we know that there's a mixture of these isotopes, the natural isotopes and the synthetic isotopes, but chemically it's all mixed together. And then what we do is we, um, we put these, uh, we purify the uranium, we separate it out, and then we put it in an, um, an instrument called a mass spectrometer. And this is an instrument um, that can actually separate the individual isotopes so we can measure their individual relative abundances 
and, uh, and then measure the isotopic composition or the relative abundances of each isotope um, in the sample. And so in this case, we would be measuring some amount of uranium-233 and some amount of uranium-238, and we would measure that as a ratio. But because we know how much uranium-233 we put in, and we know the ratio of uranium-233 to uranium-238, we can calculate exactly how much uranium-238 is in the sample. It's that was a lot there. No, I, I think it's very interesting to me that you would get that from creating that mixture. Like you said, mixing it up really, yeah. really well and, and, and then separating it out. Wow. That yeah, it's the same. It's actually the same principle as you use to uh, measure populations in like bird species, for example. So you take, uh, you take um, a bunch of birds, you'd capture them uh, and you tag them with little bands. And then you send all those banded, say you capture maybe 10 birds and then you'd send them back out and then you'd wait a while. They would mix basically just like the isotopes mix. So the banded birds are like our uranium-233 and the non-banded birds are like our uranium-238. And then after a while you recapture the birds and then you have some of them are banded, some of them aren't, but you know that you originally had 10 banded birds. So by that ratio and the number of bands that you've got, you can actually calculate the total population of birds. So it's a, it's basically the same. It's the same math and the same principle, but yeah. like, uh, applied to applied to isotopes instead of birds. Oh, that's so cool! Now your uranium dating, uh, and it's it's amazing what how small of a amount that you're working with. It just that kind of blows my mind. You can learn things from that. But with it having, I mean, it's basically four and a half billion year half-life. Is How good is it for um, detecting, like maybe, I mean, do we do exposure dating of it? Uh, I mean, obviously it wouldn't work for like a tree or something like that. I would think it'd be too small of a time. And so it's how how long of a time period is that actually good for? Yeah, that's a great question, Stephen. Um, so you're exactly right. Um, because it has such a long half-life, we need to wait a long time in order to have enough lead in order to detect. So if I was to put a piece of purified uranium on my desk today and try to measure it tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to measure the amount of lead in it. Um, so based on the current methods that we have, we can go back... Um, we can start dating things that are about 700,000 years old. So that's about as young as we can get with uranium lead, um, about 700,000 years. And that uh, give or take uh, a little bit depending on the exact conditions, but that's roughly how, how young you can go. How old you can go, um, there's really, um, there's, no, there's no practical limit. Um, we don't have any materials that predate the solar system that we might be able to date using uranium lead. So the oldest things that we've been able to date are the oldest solids in the solar system. And that's actually how we know how old the solar system is, is by uranium lead dating. Um, and so that's as far back as we can go. And we could go back further if we had, uh, if we had samples from outside the solar system, um, we would be able to do that. So there's no practical upper limit, I guess, but there is a practical lower limit. You're exactly right. It's, it's the limit to which um, it's basically the detection limit for that radiogenic lead, that lead that's formed by radioactive decay of uranium. Now, so oh, I was just going to say, so if our lower threshold is the 700,000 years old, but let's say like I've seen before in textbooks, right? You'll have a question about, we want to know if this old piece of artwork is authentic or if it's just a knockoff, like how can we tell if it's 
you know, really several hundred. Could we, is there a method we can use to, to go younger than 7,000 years old? Yeah, there are a number of different um, methods that uh, methods for dating rocks using rocks and, and other kinds of substances using radioactive decay. Uranium lead is just one of them. Um, a related technique um, is the decay of potassium 40 to argon 40. Um, and that technique um, can be used much, much younger. And in fact, um, there are historical eruptions that have been dated using the decay of potassium to argon. Uh, and that decay system can also go back to the beginning of the solar system. So that one can be used for dating things like volcanic eruptions um, that have a very wide range. Um, there are other things you may have heard about carbon dating. That's a little bit different, um, a little bit different because the carbon-14 that's used for um, uh, for this uh, for this particular method has an extremely short half-life. The half-life of carbon-14 is only about five, uh, five and a half, 5.7 thousand years, um, but it's continuously produced in the atmosphere. So that carbon-14, unlike uranium, the carbon-14 is being continuously produced and continuing to decay. So none of the carbon-14 that we have on Earth right now um, was present when the, uh, when the Earth accreted four and a half billion years ago. Um, and carbon-14 is a, is a method that's used to date um, uh, organic, uh, organic material that's younger than um, about 50,000 years or so. So that's something that's used, um, used for much younger materials. Um, so things like wood, um, burnt uh, things like animals. Um, there are other techniques that kind of bridge that gap. So there's a big gap there between um, 50,000 years for, um, uh, for carbon dating and 700,000 years for uranium lead. And there are related techniques called uranium thorium, which are a little bit more complicated, but rely uh, again on the decay of uranium-238 um, to a different isotope, um, this an isotope of thorium. Um, that can be used to date um, things like eggshells, things like corals um, that uh, bridge that gap that are maybe um, that you can get down to tens of thousands of years and all the way to several hundred thousand years. Um, so there are, are and there are, there are other techniques that use uh, a variety of, of different kinds of um, uh, radioactive elements um, that can be used for uh, to date other kinds of things. Now it's, it, I'm probably going to screw up how the, the right words because I'm going off of very old memories, um, but with uh, carbon dating, and there is a there's an offset that you have to apply because of the carbon that was produced from what, the atom bomb explosion. Yeah, that's right. So um, the because it's continuously produced in the atmosphere, um, the original amount of carbon fourteen in naturally occurring carbon, um, like like our bodies, uh, varies with the um, amount of carbon fourteen that's being produced in the atmosphere. And so there are actually natural variations. Um, and in part, those are due to the waxing and waning of Earth's magnetic field. So Earth's magnetic field actually protects us from um, some of the um, from some of the, uh, the high energy particles that actually produce the carbon-14 in the atmosphere. And as the Earth's magnetic field changes strength, that actually changes the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. And that generates itself um, natural variations in carbon-14. And then starting um, with atmospheric atom bomb testing, there have been synthetic changes in the amount of carbon-14. So uh, humans have done that to ourselves, kind of perturbed the atmospheric carbon-14. Um, some groups, um, some scientists actually have been able to turn this into um, a bit of a, uh, 
um, a bit of a benefit, actually. So there's a research group that can actually date Scotch whiskey using carbon-14 and the atom bomb curve. Um, so what you see when you get genuine Scotch, um, and it's genuinely a particular age, it will be, it'll be bottled, you know, 10 or 15 years after the, um, after it was, um, uh, after it was, uh, I guess, decanted into, um, into barrels. Um, and there'll be, and what you see is you actually see that the carbon 14 actually follows that, um, bomb curve almost exactly with an offset relative to how long it took to, uh, um, to, to age that, uh, age that whiskey. Um, so you can actually use that to determine whether your very, very expensive whiskey is actually fake or not. Uh, and there's a group in Scotland that's, uh, that's actually doing that. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's very interesting. Is there, is there any events that could have happened, and I'm thinking of like nuclear explosion, oh, Chernobyl type of thing, that would could possibly impact the results of the test you do with uranium? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the samples that we get um, are basically, one of the reasons why we use zircon, um, this mineral that we use um, that's related to cubic zirconia, uh, is because it's very hard and very chemically resistant. So this thing has been basically this trapped little capsule that's basically impenetrable and almost impossible to, uh, to, to react with chemicals. That actually makes it very difficult to work with in the lab because it doesn't like revealing its secrets. Um, but when it, when it sits out in nature, um, it... Um, when it sits out in nature, it's very impervious to this kind of alteration. Um, and in fact, we usually work with rocks that, um, that haven't experienced much weathering at the surface. So they're probably less likely to be, um, be just basically by the way that we sample, they're less likely to be contaminated by these kinds of, uh, these kinds of um, human-induced problems. And I guess that leads us to, because I don't think we really talked, why are you doing this? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Because I'm a geologist, I think I said at the top, because I'm a geologist, I go and look at rocks and I'm often wondering how old they are. Uh, and so things that we do are we date, for example, volcanic eruptions, because we want to know when a volcano erupted, how frequently it erupted. Um, we want to know, um, you know, and often that'll relate to, we can relate those events to um, extinction events in the past. Um, I think you know that the, the dinosaur extinction event um, was associated with both volcanic eruptions and a bolide impact, a meteorite impact. And um, by using this kind of geochronology, we've been actually been able to tie the exact date of the dinosaur extinction event to the exact dates of volcanic eruptions and to that uh, meteorite impact. So for these kinds of global, global events, being able to tie them together in time is really, really important and to, and to establish that they are actually really related. And so that's one of the things that we do is, uh, is work out these timescales um, as precisely as we can from these decay-based um, decay uh, chronometers. Oh, awesome. That is really cool. What do you see as potential for like in the job field? Let's say someone's listening and they think, oh my gosh, this sounds really neat, but you know, are, is there a lot of potential right now for careers that... That deal with this? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are uh, quite a few different types of geochronology, geochronology labs in the United States and, and abroad. Um, there aren't that many in industry. So most labs that do geochronology, dating rocks and minerals, um, work, in, uh, work in research labs, um, mainly in universities. There are a few government labs. Um, and most people who do the kind of geochronology that I do, working on uranium lead, um, 
did degrees as geologists, but there are people who do a lot of carbon dating who um, took degrees as physicists. So the physicists who run these large facilities um, because the infrastructure is very complicated um, and those people are usually trained as physicists uh, and they usually work in research labs. So there are a variety of different jobs, university professors, um, sometimes research scientists like myself, um, and, uh, and they work in, uh, yeah, mainly work in university research labs. And some of them do work in, um, uh, in government labs. I know a few people who um, do a combination of what we call nuclear forensics. And that's basically looking at, um, looking at wipe tests from nuclear reactors or um, dust um, flown by um, planes high in the atmosphere. And they look at the, um, at the type of uranium and other uranium-related minerals to try and determine um, what types of uh, nuclear enrichment processes are going on in other countries in order to establish whether or not they're making nuclear weapons or um, enriching uranium consistent with um, uh, consistent with international treaties. Um, and so people like myself will work in those labs and they will sometimes do a little bit of those nuclear forensics and sometimes they'll do a little bit of geochronology. So they do a little bit of, a little bit of both because they're very closely related as I think you've been able to tell. Yeah. Coolest project worked on? Uh, that's a good question. So I just had a PhD student finish who was uh, looking at the age of this huge volcanic province in Western Scotland um, on the island of Skye and Mull. And those are, that's cool because the rocks are amazing and they're a classic locality. Um, they're these huge basalt flows and these massive granites in these, in these, um, uh, in these, in the, the in the Black Coolins and Skye. And uh, she was able to work out, um, some really, really detailed uh, geochronology looking at how fast these basalts were in place and how slowly, surprisingly, the granites were in place. And that was really exciting, um, partly because it was really classic geology that we didn't have a good time scale for, um, and partly because it's just such a beautiful place to work. So that's one of the great things about my job is that I do spend a lot of time in the lab, but I do get a chance to get outside, sample rocks, and try, try to figure out what's going on out there. So just to be able to stand on a mountain and say, I want to know how old that, that, and that are, and I want to know how they relate to each other and be able to take those rocks, you know, bring them back to the lab and then figure all that out. That's just a, such a wonderful feeling. All right. That's cool. That I'll give you that. Because cool. yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I've, I've stood on mountains and thought, how old is this? But I couldn't go find it, figure it out. And to be someone who can like, I'm curious to know how old it is. I think I'll go find out. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Too. It's perfect. I, just, I love that we're able to use science to, to figure out things like this that, you know, we weren't there, so we don't know when it was. So the fact that we can use these knowns and go back and make these calculations and determine, like you're saying, you know, an exact date of when an event happened, I think is just awesome. Yeah. An exact date or a rate. So looking at, um, you know, how long something took to evolve, right. Those are, those are all kinds of interesting things. So yeah, being able to look at a rock and see like, are those things the same age? When did this happen? You know, it's just, it's such a, such a fun, it's very satisfying to do when it works. And now for some bonus footage as we tour a clean chemistry room and see how samples are prepared with Dr. Ryan Eckert. 
So when we make measurements of small amounts of uranium and lead for these um, to do to determine the ages of rock, we work with extremely small quantities of lead. So we're very, very sensitive to contamination from the environment. So there's lots of lead in the atmosphere, um, there's lead in dust, there's lead in all kinds of things. So um, we have to prepare samples in um, what we call a clean room or a clean chemistry room. And the main, um, the main defining quality of a clean room like this is that the air quality is very clean. So we have, uh, we pump in air uh, and we pump it through HEPA filters. So you might remember HEPA filters um, because of everybody wants HEPA filters to filter out coronavirus. Um, but we pump air through HEPA filters into this lab and then this lab is positively pressured relative to the outside. So the air comes in here and it pushes against dirty air from the outside. So it pushes against the doors and through any cracks. So it doesn't suck in any air, okay? And then we also have these, um, we also have fume hoods here, and these fume hoods also have their own filters. So there's also a, a filter called a ULPA filter. It's like a HEPA filter, but um, even uh, even higher efficiency, particle efficiency. And that pushes clean air down here. Um, and then air is extracted through, um, through these grates down here. So we're protected from acid uh, or acid fumes, which we use a lot in here, by the air being extracted through these grates. And any samples that we're preparing in here are also protected by air coming in. Like I mentioned, when we were discussing um, the, uh, discussing on Zoom, um, the actual crystals that we um, that we typically analyze are extremely small. So maybe um, one tenth of one millimeter across um, in in its longest dimension. So they're very very small. So we actually use very very small labware so we don't lose the samples. And we're also because we're sensitive to contamination, we want to use low volumes of reagents because anytime we add acid or add a reagent, we're also potentially introducing contamination. So we want to um, use a small amount of volume as possible. And the sample goes on a, on a filament. Um, there's a thin filament up here. This is um, high purity uranium wire. And what we do is we deposit the sample on top of there and then we'll just let it dry down to a thin film. We, we dry it. We, so we put it on there as a liquid and then we dry it out. So if it was lead, it would be a small amount of lead in a small amount of acid and then it'll dry down to, um, to lead salts on the surface here. And then we put this into a turret. So you can see this, um, this can hold up to 20 samples. So this is a thermalization mass spectrometer. Um, and so what that means is that uh, there's two parts to that. Thermalionization, and that means that in order to um, produce the, the ions that we need, the charged particles to make a measurement, we heat them up. So it's a thermal process. So what we do is we put them on a, a very thin filament, um, usually either rhenium or tantalum, or rhenium or tungsten. Uh, and then we put a current through that filament, just like you would in, a, in an old uh, fashioned incandescent light bulb. And it gets really bright and it gets really hot. And then the sample, which has been, so we place the sample on that, on that thin filament and the sample gets really hot. And as it um, gets past maybe 1300 or 1400 degrees Celsius, it'll evaporate, but it'll also ionize. So it'll lose an electron. And we really need it to lose an electron because we, uh, we need to measure it as, uh, we need to measure these, um, these elements as separate ions because they, we pass them through a magnetic field. And when they go through the magnetic field, um, because they're charged particles, we accelerate them into the magnetic field. And because they're charged particles, they actually separate according to mass. So that's what we have here. So this is a big, this is a big electromagnet. And so um, we produce ions um, 
The filaments go in this part. This is the source. This is where we put the samples. Uh, and then we accelerate them at about um, 8,000 kilo electron volts. And they go this way. They go through the magnet. And then um, for ions, uh, for different isotopes of the same element, um, they'll have different masses. So they'll take a different radius through the magnet. So they'll actually split out. Um, and so that's the way that we can measure different isotopes of, for example, lead. Um, lead has, natural lead has four isotopes, lead 204, 206, 207, and 208. And they'll spread, and then we'll have four different ion beams at the back end that we can measure with the, uh, with the collector assembly. So the ion beams are, uh, are spread out this way, and then they're measured by little separate little electrometers uh, in the back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!